1: Hello listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries You're listening to a clip of Catacombs by Cutler Station A group out of Vincent, a crossroads near Marietta They are our featured musical artists tonight So stick around to the end of the podcast We're going to tell you a little bit more about them Where to see them perform And let you hear the rest of that song But right now Let's throw another log on the fire campers I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
2: Hi, everyone. Steve, maybe it's my imagination, but I come across so many murders of single women in the 1970s. It just seemed like a terribly dangerous period. And I've got another one tonight, the tragic, brutal murder of Leslie Ann Barker a kind and well-respected special education teacher in Akron. Leslie was 28 years old in 1978. She was born in Bay City, Michigan, and was a teenager when she moved with her parents, Ken and Elizabeth, and her brother Glenn, to Akron in 1966. They settled into the city's west side, an area known for its nice middle-class neighborhoods on tree-lined streets. Leslie's dad, Ken Barker, was dean of the College of Education at the University of Akron, and Leslie was fulfilling her own dream of becoming an educator. She got her degree at Akron U after graduating from Firestone High School, and in 1978, she was into her third year at Hotchkiss Elementary School, where she taught special education students. She loved her job and working with her kids, 17 youngsters between the ages of 11 and 14 who needed the kind of patience and special attention that her supervisor said she was so skilled at giving. Now Leslie was still living at home on Tamiami Trail with her parents. She was a petite girl, about 5 foot 3 inches, 100 pounds. She had short blonde hair. Oh, that is little. She's little. She didn't have a boyfriend at the moment, but about once a week, she saved time to go out and have fun with her friends at local hot spots. Can you imagine uh, what local hot spots would have been trending back in the nineteen late nineteen seventies?
1: Well, late nineteen seventies, disco.
2: Disco. Yes, that was that was very big, and disco was definitely on the jukebox at uh, a very popular nightclub. Uh, called Reds. It was located on Waterloo Road. Did you? I don't know. You probably don't remember
1: Reds, do no, you? No, I don't. What is, yeah. Where about is that on Waterloo? Do you remember?
2: It's uh, close to the Goodyear Hangar. Oh. Yeah. So, Down okay. that direction. That? Yeah. So it's a Wednesday night, April 5th, and Leslie went to Reds with a girlfriend, and they sat at the end of the long oval-shaped bar when they weren't dancing, that is. The bartender that night, George Shapiro told a reporter she was there till about 1 a.m. George was the son of the owner and a classmate of Leslie's at Firestone High School. He said that Leslie had been coming into the club about once a week for six months. The two didn't know each other well when they attended Firestone High together, but they talked with each other a little bit every time she came in. Leslie's last night at Reds, she wore a red coat, red slacks, a red vest, and a white blouse. Shapiro showed a reporter where she and her friend sat for the four hours they were there. They got up to dance or go to the restroom, he said, but they always returned to their seats. He also remembered them chatting with a couple of guys. She was a real nice girl, Shapiro said. She always seemed to be in a pretty good mood and she never seemed to drink too much. On that Wednesday night, the bartender remembered he had served her two screwdrivers. You know what's in a screwdriver?
1: Is that the one with the orange juice? Yeah. And I'm not sure what else goes on. Vodka. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: yeah. But you know, that's a modest amount for a four-hour stay. Shapiro didn't see Leslie leave. She was there, then she wasn't. He thought the last time he'd seen her, it was about 1 a.m. At 5.50 a.m., Akron's fire department answered a call from Robert Vandal, a resident on Mentor Road. He and his wife Eloise were awakened by three loud explosions, then looked outside to see flames in the night. Police and firemen arrived to find a burning 1977 Orange Pontiac Grand Prix. The explosions the vandals heard, it might have been the tires blowing
1: from the heat. I was about to say, you know, when you hear explosion with a car, everybody thinks gasoline. But gasoline really does not explode. So it had to be something else.
2: Yeah, and in this case, the engine did not explode. So they they really thought it was That's only in the
1: movies where, you know, the engine explodes because of the gas. But obviously, it was the tires. Are you sure about that? Oh, absolutely. Engines can't explode? They can't explode because um, gas isn't that... a big combustible. You know what I mean? It doesn't really make an explosion.
2: Okay. So, All yeah.
0: Right.
2: All right. Well, arson investigators would determine the car had been doused with a flammable liquid and set alight. A car doesn't burn that quickly and that completely unless it has help, they said. They also believed it had been burning for some time before it was discovered. After they put out the fire, they found a body in the back seat. Leslie's charred remains had to be identified through dental records. The coroner said he couldn't be sure whether Leslie had died before the car was set on fire or after. Her body was burned so badly, he couldn't even rule on the cause of death or say whether she had been sexually assaulted. The car was parked off a lane in a wooded area near Mentor Road next to the railroad tracks and was about a mile from where Leslie lived. The lane had become a popular spot for young lovers, neighbors told police. If investigators had any hope of finding footprints or tire tracks, the effort to put the car fire out had obliterated them. Through interviews, police soon discovered whom they believed was the last person known To see Leslie alive. They never released his name. He was 30 years old, lived in North Canton, and worked for United Airlines at the Akron Canton Airport.
1: So let's go back to the car fire real quick. Obviously, they didn't know there was a body in there. I think if they would have noticed the body in there, they probably would have just let it burn instead of putting it out.
2: I don't think that would have helped either way. Okay. I'm thinking if you put the fire out, you're obliterating any evidence. But if you let the fire finish, it's obliterating any evidence. Mm, I'm not sure there's anything that you could have done on that. Okay. So this man that they found, he told detectives he met Leslie through a computerized matchmaking activity at Red's. I didn't even know this was a thing. Remember, this is 1978. This is well before home computers and online dating sites. So I'm not sure how that would have worked. Maybe, um, you maybe like, answered questions on a survey and a computer kind of matched other people that were saying the same answers. Yeah. Not sure. But they had been suggested to each other as a good match, Leslie and this man. And on the night Leslie was killed they saw each other at Red's. Now, they made plans to go on a date Friday night. But First, Leslie offered to drive the man to her home to show him where it was. Again, this is pre-GPS, so maybe she just thought it would be easier to lead him over there so he could see where it was. And after showing him where she lived, she drove him back to his car, which was parked at Red's. He remembered that before they parted, he asked if he should lock the passenger side door as he was exiting it, and he couldn't remember what she replied or whether he had actually locked it. The man told police that he and Leslie drove away from the bar in separate cars at 2.45 a.m., and her body was found three hours after that. The man volunteered to take a lie detector test, and he passed it twice. Twice. Detectives said he was not a suspect. They had no suspect. They interviewed neighbors and friends and turned up nothing. Some residents on Menor Road told police they heard a car idling and then driving away between 3 and 3.30 the night Leslie was killed. That was just a block or two away from where the car was ultimately found. But no one was bothered enough by the sound to look outside to see what the car looked like. A week after her murder, Akron detectives set up roadblocks along the route Leslie had traveled the night of her death. They stopped cars and interviewed motorists, hoping to find someone who regularly traveled that area and might have seen something. But they turned up nothing.
0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McKrispy Sandwich.
2: A couple of weeks later, the state fire marshal's laboratory in Columbus revealed something interesting about the burned car. It had been doused with a high-octane gasoline commonly used in airplanes. Obviously, thoughts turned to that date Leslie had, the man who worked at the airport. But detectives went out of their way to take attention away from him, saying he did not work near the fuel pumps and that a lot of people would have access to the kind of fuel that was used. They also reminded the public that the man had passed two lie detector tests. Well, it wasn't until July, that was three months after Leslie's murder, that the coroner finally got back some tests he was waiting for. That's when he announced that Leslie had been alive while the car was consumed by fire. It was impossible to know whether she was conscious or not, he said, but he ruled her death homicide by asphyxiation. A special garden was created at Hotchkiss Elementary in memory of their beloved teacher. Through tears, her principal, Thomas Royce, said she was well-liked by both kids and staff. It takes a great deal of patience to do her job, he said. She enjoyed it she found it very worthwhile and rewarding. Leslie's case grew cold and it grew cold fast. It's been 41 years, but I couldn't find a single public update on her case since the year it happened.
1: Well, that's, that's very sad. Well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say.
2: Well, for tonight's armchair detective, we have a first. We have a returnee armchair detective, Leslie Rarick, who was our AD on the Rachel Johnson case. Welcome back, Leslie.
3: Thanks, Paula. Steve, thanks for having me back.
2: Uh, Leslie has a Facebook page called Akron Noir Alley. And if you don't know how to spell Noir, it's N-O-I-R. <laughs> so go find it. Uh, ask to become a member. And she covers all kinds of um, Akron area cases going way back. And you had actually Mm -hmm. posted this about Leslie on that Facebook page, and that's what reminded me of it. And then it all came back, because I remembered when it happened. Why did this one touch you, that you went to the extent of doing a little research and sticking it on your Facebook page?
3: Yeah, well I was looking into, you know, Rachel Johnson's case, and I came across Leslie's case, and it was the manner of, uh, you know, Leslie Barker's death that that kind of uh, caught caught my attention because it was, you know, she was also there was also a fire involved and and that caught my attention and the fact that no, you didn't read about it after like 1983. Yeah, it's very really, sad.
2: The whole case just dropped off the face of the earth.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. It did. That's right. Yeah. But
2: sometimes I like to cut to the chase and then go backwards. So let's cut to the chase. Do you mm-hmm. have a theory?
3: I do. Um, As mentioned in the, you know, the newspaper articles, they believe, well, they, she had met a man that night. The, the bar did a, a dating game called Selectrocution. And this was something that in the late seventies and the eight through the late eighties that, you know, different bars would, they would have where you would wear initials. And if you saw someone, that you liked, you would write their initials on a piece of paper. And when you filled up five initial sets of initials, you would give it to the guy who ran the thing. It was this guy from Greensboro, North Carolina, that ran it. And he would go to these different bars. Give him your your initials, and he would run it. He would call a computer in Maryland, and then it would spit out. At the end of the night, they would give you back who the initials of who had picked you, and I guess, like, it, the person who, you know, if you were electrocuted, it was, so you didn't get any initials, nobody picked you, but I'm, um, you know, in in the meantime, he, this guy that ran the dating game, he had a typewriter there in the bar, and- he had a board behind him, and he could type things into the board. So if people were impatient and didn't want to wait until, like, 1 o'clock in the morning to get their the initials back of who had selected them, they would write a message like, you know, BZ, meet me at the bar, signed... Um, you know, L.A. or something like that. So that's what she, you know, she had participated. I love this in information.
2: I had no idea when I read this. Uh, Electrocution. The old Akron, Considering what happened, old school a Akron Really folks. unfortunate name. Yeah, was,
3: I know. You know, old yes. school Akron folks might remember this. Yeah, they played it at Reds over on Waterloo Road, and they had been doing it a month prior to her death, and it was said that she had been going to the bar about once a week for a month. And I think she was participating in this game. That's
2: why she was going once a week. Okay. Yeah. I was really kind of unclear as to whether she had met him for the first time that night as a result of the game. Is that the feeling you came away with?
3: Okay. Yeah. And one article, I think they described him as a boyfriend, but I believe that that's incorrect. She had met him that night. He was an employee at Akron Canton Airport with United Airlines, and that's about all we know. We don't have no name or anything like that because he was cleared after two lie detector tests. But my
2: so, continuing with your theory, yeah, you think it's uh, quite possible that the man she was matched to
3: mm-hmm. is the one, yes, and then the oh, same absolutely. man that she
2: drove to her house that night.
3: Absolutely, I don't think she drove him at all. I think he followed her in his car, and oh. yeah. Because the witness that lived on the street where, you know, her her burned out car was found, who had called. um, Well, the the witnesses on the street had heard a car idling and then drive away between 3 and 3.30 a.m. So um, I think he had, you know, he followed her. Like, she said, let me show you where I live. Okay, I'll follow you. Maybe they get back there. He says, oh, I want to come in. You know, let 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 me come in. She lived with her parents. Maybe they decided to go to this spot. It was like a lovers' lane spot. It was a dead end street. I think that things got out maybe got out of hand. She was found in the back seat of the car. You know whether or not it was airplane high octane airplane gasoline, like they said. I don't know. Racing fuel was also very high octane fuel.
2: Yeah, Back the then, so. the article said, when it described the fuel, it said, for instance, the kind used in planes. So it could have been used somewhere else. Yes. But th- the idea that it was also plane fuel, and they had already announced that they had talked to a guy who worked at the airport. It was hard to overlook that. Right, right. But I could see why the police, at the very same time, they're giving out this information. They're like, but don't accuse anybody, because other people have access to this. Right. But... It, is it that
3: accessible I don't know I like I said I don't think it was I don't think it was airplane fuel it could have been but I mean who who carries that around with them I think it was someone with a hot rod who had you know like um 100 uh, you know oct- whatever the octane is that they right. use for the racing cars that's what I think it was
2: Now Leslie was a teacher and you know when you lose somebody like that it's not just the family that mourns. I mean, you had an entire school that mourned, and they even put together a memorial garden mm-hmm. for her. Did you make a trip out there? I
3: did. I did. It's it's not there anymore. Okay. I mean, Hotch- Hotchkiss School is just, it's abandoned. It's weeds growing everywhere, um, concrete in back. Um, oh, I didn't even old, realize that it. it's equipment. already
2: closed.
3: Oh, yeah, it's been yeah. closed since 2006. Took a few pictures of maybe where thought it could be and you know maybe one of the listeners could fill us in as to where it was but um, I think it'd be nice if you know Akron Public Schools uh, did something another little garden somewhere uh, for her in her name. There is a scholarship in her name at Akron U. Her father was the dean of the education department so. Is that still around that mm -hmm, scholarship? Yes yep yeah, I don't think I, I mentioned that, that in
2: it. our episode. What mm-hmm. What is that again? It's, it's a scholarship for... Education mm, majors.
3: Education majors. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm.
2: Something I found interesting on this case was that the detectives had set up roadblocks on the street along the route that Leslie would have taken to go home that night so they could stop right. and interview
3: motorists.
2: I don't think I read about that happening before. Have you heard of that? Is uh, that...
3: Yes, they did that with Rachel's case, oh, did as they in fact, yeah, they stopped people on Britain Road after her murder, you know, just asking if anybody had seen anything now uh with in reference to Leslie's case, the Beacon Journal had reported that the route she would have taken, you know this is through her uh interviews with her friends would have been. The highway. So she would have gone down Waterloo and got on uh, 77 there and then got off at, I think that's 77, yeah, 77 and then got off at Bokdo and then I think took Fir Tree to Market and then to Merriman. That would have been her route back then. I thought she would have taken Arlington Road all the way. To Market Street, but um, Beacon had reported that she took the highway.
2: She took the highway. Yeah, I would never I, have guessed. I don't that. know that
3: she took the highway that night, but that's what yeah. you know when they interview people, that's what they said. Her okay. Route preferred route was. So yeah, they 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 stopped people. They had dedicated, like you said in your um, in the introduction, five detectives to the investigation. They interviewed over one hundred witnesses. You know, it all leads back to that that man. That she met
2: and because the evidence was destroyed so completely, there isn 't that kind of hope that you have in a lot of cases that all the new DNA technology mm-hmm. will help bring a case to a resolution because I did not hear of any DNA existing in this case
3: there was nothing there was nothing left but some shreds of clothing uh, they said a couple melted necklaces. And she had been identified through, you know, dental records. What's interesting, though, is her gas tank never exploded. It was the tires, you know, as you had mentioned um, in the intro, it was the tires that had exploded. And that that's what the neighbors were hearing. But um, her gas tank didn't explode. Well, you so were not was... here
2: for the recording of the story portion, but... <laughs> I did bring up that gasoline doesn't explode. As our friend Steve here, ah, okay. yes. Yeah, and after you said that, I went online and read about it, and it's extremely rare. It has to be the exact right conditions mm-hmm. for a gas tank to explode because otherwise it's just not getting the air it needs to explode. Right. Hm. It'll it'll fire up, you know, it'll blaze, mm-hmm. but it won't pop.
3: Yeah, and the, her car was just a shell when they found it. I just wonder, you know, why was she back? why was she in the back seat like that? you know, why was she back there if it wasn't someone that you know, maybe she was back there with the guy and they were, you know, making out and something went really wrong and that that's that's what i think. i don't know if he purposely meant to kill her, but he sure thought he would get in trouble and he came back and or or got out whatever was in this trunk and and got rid of the evidence, but yeah, it burned um, hot, and it burned really fast. and
2: If he had followed her in his car, then he mm-hmm. definitely had to have some communication with her on what to do for her to pull over so that he could have access to her. So that that's a right. kind of a, a situation well, I'm struggling with. She, How would that have happened?
3: She was, His story was she drove him to her parents' house so he could pick her up the next night for their dates. She wanted to show him where she lived.
2: Right. No he, GPS back then. Right. So it's very helpful to have somebody guide you.
3: And then the story is that she drove him back to Reds and then he got in his you know car and went on his way and he saw her pull out of the parking lot of Reds at 2:45. It's just it's just crazy to me that she would drive all the way from Waterloo Road, down, you know, to Mer- past Merriman, where she she lived off of Merriman, and then back to Red's. She It was schools the next day. She was a teacher. Right. <laughs> and so this is not,
2: you know, a two-minute
3: drive. Right. That's why I think she said, you know, follow me in your car. I'll show you where I live. They got to the driveways. I think he said, can I come in? You no, know, my mom and dad, you know, I live with my parents, my brother. She's like, well, but maybe we can, you know go over yeah and the only other theory is just a strange a stranger theory maybe she stopped to get gas or something like that and somebody you know got in her car and uh, abducted her
2: and that makes things so much more complex that on the night that a stranger's gonna abduct you is also the night that you met a nice guy who you had Mm -hmm. follow you to your house because if he's innocent then he then he's telling the truth about mm-hmm. having driven to her house. Right. That just adds a whole layer of complexity. That a stranger then also picks you up that night. Mm-hmm. It's hard to see somebody having that much fate mm-hmm. interfering in your life in one right. night.
3: Right. Mm, I just I don't lie detector tests. You know we really don't depend on those too much anymore. They're just uh, there to find any kind of deception, then, you know, law enforcement kind of dig in further and say, well, you know, you didn't answer this question completely honest, so let's go a little bit deeper into this. But to just clear him, just based on lie detector tests, it just goes to show that they didn't have, they just didn't have anything. After they put the fire out, there was just nothing left. Nobody saw anything. Right. It's, It's just so sad.
2: So if it's a guy from electrocution, what kind of hope is there that they would be able to find anything new on him?
3: Well, you know, Paula, I think in with a lot of these cold cases, the law enforcement knows who you know who the murderer was or who the killer was, but they can't pursue it. They might not have enough evidence. The prosecutor doesn't have enough evidence to bring it to to the grand jury, and um, you know that's a hard pill to swallow for them and to to go on, you know, just year after year knowing that would be really tough. It's it, it's they have a hard job. They have a really tough job. You know, I think they know in this instance. I think they really they do know it was it was him.
2: Yeah. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for being here again. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. Your Facebook page, Akron Noir Alley. You started because you're sort of a a true crime fan, but you've also actually tried to help people investigate cases, as you did with Rachel Johnson's daughter. Uh, Rachel Johnson, by the way, that was episode 27, so Mm -hmm. if you haven't heard Leslie uh, and Rachel's daughter, go back and and listen to that one. Um, Anything on your docket that we should be looking for in the future?
3: Uh, You know, I think next I... I'm looking into the death of a young man from Kent. He worked at the Duke and Duchess uh, oh, gas station. For, I remember that. I think his that. name is Fo- Fogeth, his last name.
2: I can't remember the name, but yeah. I remember the Duke and Duchess case. Yeah,
3: yeah there's some so just some you know, interesting points uh, that, and things that happened with that case. But they did an Unsolved Mysteries um, episode about it did Uh, yeah i'd like to feature it because an old an old boyfriend was a friend of of this this gentleman this kid that got um killed and uh he was just devastated it it hurt a lot of people in the community back then so i thought it'd be worth bringing it back up
2: well i look forward to seeing your research
0: on that
3: thanks paula all Mm -hmm. right
1: that's it for tonight listeners for photos news clippings and more on this and every episode hop on over to our website OhioMysteries.com.
2: and that brings us to tonight's featured ohio musical artist as we said cutler station is from vincent a small community in southeast ohio near the ohio river band members are john evans kirby evans steve lipscomb and jason swiger the band is a group of friends and brothers who genuinely love playing and making original music together. They've been doing it for more than 20 years. Find and follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and Spotify. And be sure to check out their website, CutlerStation.com. If you're anywhere near Marietta, swing by and hear the guys. They'll be performing at the townhouse on August 24. And if you're closer to Athens, Ohio, you can catch them At the Smiling Skull on September 14.
1: At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of their song, Catacombs. Here's the rest of that song. Turn up the volume, and we'll meet you right back here for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.